This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Hello and welcome to High Theory. Today we are talking about Global Asia with Cheryl Narumi. Naruse. Cheryl, before we begin talking about your book and your work, can we have you introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Um, my name is Cheryl Narumi Naruse. I'm an assistant professor of English and the Andrew W. Mellon Assistant Professor of the Humanities at Tulane University, uh, where I teach contemporary Anglophone literatures and cultures, uh, especially those from Southeast Asia and the Pacific Islands, uh, diasporic Asian and Asian American literature, and postcolonial theory. Thank you so much for coming to High Theory uh, and talking to us about Global Asia, which is the title, well, part of the title of your upcoming book, Becoming Global Asia, Contemporary Genres of Postcolonial Capitalism in Singapore. Uh, But before we talk about the book, Cheryl, what the heck is Global Asia? Uh, So in my book, I'm thinking about how Singapore has transformed its reputation as a draconian authoritative state to one that is uh, desirable, cool, and uh, admirable. You know, and I think you can observe this in a number of different ways these days. Uh, Singapore is featured on television shows, Hollywood, Bollywood, travel shows. It's in the New York Times. Uh, You also see this in political commentary. Uh, Policymakers from both the global south and the global north uh, are often citing Singapore as a model for economic development. And um, I mean, I guess anecdotally speaking, I would say like I've also noticed a shift of um, this perception of Singapore, this shift in the perception of Singapore over the last 20 years I've lived in the United States, like when I first moved here, I'd get these questions about whether I've ever been caned before mm. or whether I've ever chewed gum. And I'd also get questions about like whether I'd ever met a white person before right. or if there was like running water in Singapore. Um, these days, I tend to get comments that are more like, oh, my gosh, I love Singapore or I wish I could visit one day. It looks so cool. Or my cousin who works in finance, like lives in Singapore and thinks it's the best. Right. You know, so there's been like a real like change over time. So. Um, Global Asia is a way for me to name that transformation Mm -hmm. in the perception of Singapore as an alluring Asian setting for capitalist flourishing. 
And um, I do mean to offer the term in a broad way because the, there's just like a number of different sites in, Singa- uh, in Asia that fashion themselves in a similar way. But in the context of Singapore, though, um, Global Asia is the literal name of the strategy that was used by Singapore's Economic Development Board in the 2000s when the transformation was beginning. So my usage of Global Asia is a historical gesture and um, one that's helping me pin down like my object of study. And so the book is an attempt to understand what Global Asia is, what its story of power is, what its broader cultural and political effects are. And... um, I'm looking at an archive of literary and cultural productions, including ones by the Singaporean state uh, to study Global Asia. I mean, that choice of archive has to do with my argument that Singapore is Global Asia. You just can't understand it only as like some kind of perfected outcome of state rule or social engineering. And instead, we really have to understand it as like an aestheticized and a transnationalized narrative that exceeds Singapore itself. And one that we really have to understand with respect to the cultural history of what I'm describing uh, as post-colonial capitalism. And, you know, so in other words, I'm like really thinking about Global Asia as a post-colonial formation and an important one because like Singapore is a site that tends to elide our attention in post-colonial studies. Um, And my point isn't that we isn't that we need to be inclusive of Singapore just for the sake of. I mean, just trying to point out here that we have to understand that Singapore like Singapore's um, cultural capital and soft power as global Asia, especially because it's emerging as a site of like imperial desire. It's a post-colonial model. And it's also an economic wedge that's wielded against the global south. And I mean, I just think like these are all things that post-colonial theory like really needs to grapple with. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, the. So I guess like this is a follow-up question, and especially because uh, this is somewhat pertains to the the field that we both kind of work on, uh, which mm-hmm. is you know the cultural life of economic progress, so to speak. And mm-hmm. I was wondering if you can like you talked about how the way in which the change of uh, what Singapore is culturally speaking all over the world during you know your own life. Uh, mm-hmm. I was wondering if you can kind of situate that with respect to, you know, other Southeast Asian economies which have gone through similar kind of cultural transitions. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, like, you know, I think this comes back to, like, sort of, like, this idea that, like, global Asia, like, exists in many, like, there's many examples of them, you know, and I mean, I think, you know, Korea certainly has, like, this sort of soft power when you're thinking about, like, the influence of, like, their media systems and technology, I mean, sorry, like, their acting, K-pop, you know, K-dramas, um, Samsung, all those different things, kind of what like Japan used to be with Sony. Um, but you also have sites like, you know, India and like New India discourse. And, you know, everyone has like their sort of way of branding themselves to be a sort of site of capitalist flourishing. Um, I mean, I think the Philippines also does this, but in a very different manner um, when it comes to say like, um, like retirement tourism and that sort of thing. But um, just sort of trying to present each of these Asian sites as somehow like, yeah, like, I mean, a place where one can like live their best lives in terms of like economic development. You know, diving very concertedly into your book, uh, my next question is, how do we use or how do you use Global Asia? And I know that you have already started answering this question, but I'm kind of mainly asking you about like you know who your interlocutors are like how you're situating yourself in absolutely i mean you know i actually think the question is like just on a lot of people's minds right now um because the term is getting used across a lot of different academic institutional contexts see in the university programs conference streams 
journals and so on. And, you know, as someone like perhaps, you know, this too, as someone that works in post-colonial studies, like it feels a little like how the term global Anglophone emerged, like, like one day it just seemed to be everywhere and everyone seemed to have a different understanding of it, you know? And so I guess like, you know, for me, I'd want to say that like, it's, we have to start off splicing. It's a flexible term that has a lot of different uses um, beyond what appears in my book. Um, For me, it's about naming cultural phenomenon as a point of departure for understanding post-colonial capitalism. And, but more broadly across speaking across the academy, see global Asia being used to, I mean, I think the investment here is like really trying to change the conditions of knowledge production about Asia. And for some that can describe a critical approach that breaks free of East-West binarisms. Um, in other cases, such as the case with Tina Chen's work at the Global Asia Institute at Penn State, um, we see a critical approach that's like intersecting the sub-disciplines of Asia and Asian diasporic and Asian American studies. Um, but, you know, the term is also used by like a number of corporations. Like, I mean, if you just Google Global Asia, like, you know, there's like a million variations of like limited or um, corporate uh, namings of Global Asia. So, I mean, there it's a sort of branding technique right. to mark how the um, that particular business is ready for the global economy. So, I mean, I think what all these usages have in common, though, is that they really want to deploy the idea that Asia is a connected place and that Asia has to be understood within the dynamics of global connection. And, um, you know, what those ideas are being deployed in service of is like really where we see the differences in usage. And so, um, I mean, I guess the short answer to your question, and maybe this is a cop out, is that the term is really open to interpretation in terms of its usage. Um, It's a term that generates a lot of possible approaches, and it's a term that can also bring together a lot of different ideas. Right. Do you think, I mean, this is... (laughs) <laughs> a vague question that might be misleading. I love vague questions. Um, <laughs> but what I'm mainly kind of, uh, so at presently, you know, I'm really interested in, you talked about the cultural mm-hmm. text produced by the Singaporean government and also mm-hmm. how it kind of extends the soft power. Um, I'm wondering, do you, like, how would you kind of diagnose the difference between, uh, let's say, like a culture of efficiency that was once promoted during like the rise of this economy uh, and you know the brand global asia now which is again like this is uh there's the kind of du- like duration between those two right so this yeah is i mean i don't you- like it's you know i mean i think this comes back to like my sort of thinking around post-colonial capitalism but um you know i do want to see that like for me, like the newness of global Asia is like, even though it might like appear that way, but it's actually like a, like a cultural and political veneer that requires deeper historicization. And um, so I don't want to think about global Asia's newness as like now Singapore is trying to be like a totally different um, place with different governance, you know? Right. Um, I think that, you know, those sort of authoritarian tendencies in Singapore, like, absolutely still exist, right? I mean, like, this isn't trying, I don't want to make an argument that, like, Singapore doesn't have, like, uh, you know, the death penalty and uh, issues of censorship, so on and so forth, you know, like, all those things are absolutely still at work. And like, they're sort of marking this kind of historical moment, like, um, earlier in its um nation formation but i guess i am thinking about like how global asia is like both working within that history and also kind of obscuring it as well i mean in service of like capital accumulation right right okay 
this is a good time to pivot to, I think, my final question, which is, uh, <laughs> and you knew, you knew this was coming. So how would uh, Global Asia say? This was a this was a hard question, but you know, <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, I think ultimately it was for me like what I hope Global Asia will do is help us think more carefully about the role of post-coloniality in the production of global capitalism. Um, you know, it's like really tempting, I think, as some have, to explain phenomena like global Asia as an example of neoliberalism at work. Uh, and to me, like this really misses out on some of the nuances of how capitalism works um, or operates in post-colonial context, which is say, I mean, like to give a definition of post-colonial capitalism, it's like I'm thinking about how capitalist cultures are motivated, rationalized, strategized through a consciousness of colonialism and racial capitalism, both past and present. Um, and so I think post-colonial capitalism offers global Asia a different kind of historical gloss rather um, than neoliberalism by s- situating it within t- mm. the trajectory of decolonizing nationalisms. And, you know, I think that having right. a critical understanding of capitalism and to hopefully one day save the world from capitalism uh, means that we actually have to think through these historical and contextual particularities. Um, I think, I guess, uh before we end this episode uh i want to and because you know i haven't got my uh hands on the book yet so uh i'm really curious as to what are some of the texts that you're reading and if you can kind of pick out oh your gosh, favorites i have so many <laughs> um so uh let me see i mean i feel like the chapter that people are going to probably look at the most because of its popularity i do read the novel uh, Crazy Rich Asians by Kevin Kwan. Um, and there I am, I talk about the movie a little bit in the conclusion. Um, I spend more, definitely spend more time, um, on the novel. And I mean, in that chapter, oh, what do I say about it? I mean, I'm thinking there about like how the desire for Singapore, um, sort of operates in the context of U.S. empire decline. And or just like a sort of a fear of uh, economic decline, too. And so um, and how how we need to sort of read those dynamics, those sort of neo-orientalist dynamics within a reconfiguration of gender um, uh, relations. Um, The other chapter. So each of the chapters is really focused on like different uh, like subgenres. And um, for me, like the genre question is like all of these genres emerge around the time of Singapore's uh, transformation, which is after the uh, 1997 Asian financial crisis. And so there I'm sort of thinking like, well, you know, why is it like these uh, genres are emerging at this time? Like what are they sort of remarking about on the moment? So on and so forth. Um, I work with this novel, um, Hui Hui Tan's Mammon Inc., which is about a, person, a, a, a Singaporean woman who's newly graduated and she goes to work for the largest corporation in the world. I mean, it, so it sort of reads as a sort of comment on like corporate labor, or neoliberalism, but my reading there is sort of yeah. thinking through more like how the sort of uh, conditions of work need to be understood with respect to sort of uh, post-colonial independence movements um, in Singapore um, and not just sort of seen as like just mm. corporate ideology. Um, I think my favorite text that I work with is Jeremy Tiang's uh, It Never Rains on National Day, which is a collection of short stories about uh, diasporic uh, Singaporeans. Um, 
that book i'm like it's a little hard to contextualize my reading of it but it's like i kind of see it as like a re I, right. like I read it as a sort of critique of some of um the singaporean state's representations of diasporic singaporeans um and how that's kind of uh, been done in the past couple of years but i think you were asking me a question about like the right. singaporean state texts and um a lot of my literary uh texts that i'm examining i'm reading them alongside um like say like i have a booklet produced by the singaporean state that's like aimed at like recruiting singaporeans to return back home um i'm looking at like a newspaper series that like features uh Singaporeans living abroad and in the news in the context of Singapore like the, all the uh, newspapers are state controlled so I see that as a state text um yeah like so I mean I'm also looking at like you know policies and speeches and just sort of the general rhetoric you know the way that global yeah. age is being yeah. talked about so yeah that sounds super exciting uh, Cheryl and I can't wait to read the book thank you so much uh for coming to high theory and talking to us about glo- global Asia and how Dom is finding thank you life for right having now. me thank you so much And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage our social media presence. Julia Arian Martins edits our transcripts, and Owen Quinn composes our theme music. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day. <laughs> <laughs>